So for me, company culture is really about how you treat people and how you make them feel about coming in to work or you know working remotely, whatever it is. So number one, I stopped treating people like a tool or a cog in the machine that was only there to drive revenue. Hmm. And that's really how I saw people in the beginning. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Tabor Lote, and today our guest is Mike Simmons. And today we're talking about where flippers tend to go wrong, things that they do wrong in their businesses that either put them completely out of business or prevent them from scaling at all, and so much more. Mike really boils it down for us and gives us actionable lessons for the flippers out there if you want to grow your business and escape the corporate world like Mike did. He tells us about a formative experience that really drove him out of the corporate world, drove him to grow his real estate investing business. And we extract so many great lessons told in the form of both stories and anecdotes and everything from Mike today. So a lot of great lessons in this one. I often talk about flipping as a way I'm not a big fan of flipping as a strategy for most folks. And it's not because there's anything wrong with flipping. It's because of a lot of things we talk about today that a lot of flippers kind of fail to turn flipping into a business. They just turn it into another job. If it even becomes another job, they turn it into work or they don't turn it into an entrepreneurial venture that is not another job, right? And today, Mike is teaching us how you, if you're out there flipping, can turn your flipping business, your flipping adventure really, into a business and build financial freedom through flipping. So a lot of great lessons in this one. You're going to learn a ton. I know I did. I'm your host, Taylor Vote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties through my company, NT Capital. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, would like to talk with me about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling. So I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Mike Simmons. We're talking about key lessons for flippers to turn your flips into a business that will get you financially free out of the corporate world and help you meet your financial goals. Love it. Without any further ado, here we go. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited. Hey, I'm excited to dig into this topic. It's one that I have, you know, passion for. And for our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and uh, what you do in real estate? Yeah, 100%. So my name is Mike Simmons. I am in Michigan, born and raised, Midwest guy. I grew up in a family of automotive workers, union mentality, automotive workers, you know, solid blue collar uh, kind of an environment. Nobody in my family and nobody in my world was an entrepreneur or had a business or did anything like that. The playbook that was given to me was you go to school, then you go to college or not, but you get into a company that is union and you work 
for 30 years and then you hopefully save enough that you can kind of get by until you die. Like that's really, and it wasn't presented in those exact words, but essentially that was the message and you work all the overtime you can and keep your head down. And, and that's kind of the way it was. And, and I'll just sort of fast forward uh, about 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago now I'm at work and it's eight o'clock at night. I had been working well past normal business hours for every day that week. And uh, I was the head of a of a project where we made prototype seats. I worked for a company that made seating structures for cars. Kind of boring. But I was there with a large, big three automotive manufacturer. I'm not going to say the name, but it rhymes with <laughs> Gord. Uh, and uh, I was getting I, I was getting screamed at. Like literally in my face, there was a guy, a grown man, and I'm a grown man. And he's screaming at me because he's not happy about some of the things that were going on in the program, some delays and things like that. And uh, I went to my my manager at the time, who was also there to his credit, and I said, what's going on here? What are we doing? Why are we here at eight o'clock at night again? This is ridiculous. And he's like, we're here because we have our priorities straight. And I was like, you know what? I need to get my priorities straight because these are not my priorities. And from that point on, I decided to turn my side hustle which was real estate, and get serious about it. Turn that into something a little bit more serious because I, it was my breaking point. I kind of had it. I was there late. I uh, had kid, kids at home that I didn't see go to bed all week. My wife was getting frustrated at the late hours. And I'm doing my best to service this uh, this company, this client of ours. And I'm getting screamed at like I'm three. And uh, I just said, this isn't my life. This cannot be my life. I can't do this. This is not... And I, by the way, I went to school as an adult back to college because I didn't go right out of high school because I got a job with a good you know union company and I thought I was all set and I so I went back to college as an adult with you know a full-time job kids a mortgage and dog and everything right and I scraped and struggled because I thought I knew what I wanted and when I finally kind of was getting there this is the life I was creating for myself late hours screamed at for something that wasn't really my fault or wasn't you know on me and I just said, I can't do this. And so I had started my real estate kind of side hustle and wasn't really taking it super seriously. And I just said from, from this point forward, that is my new goal. That's that's how I escape the life that I've unfortunately put myself into. And uh, from that point, I got serious. And a year later, my company, Gross Profits, did a million dollars in gross profits. 12 months later, a million dollars... Identical or ironically, is exactly what I had made up to that point in the automotive industry in 25 years combined. <laughs> and so I was like, this is, and you know, I talked, if you ever read the book Traction by Gino mm-hmm. Wickman, mm-hmm. I, interv- I interviewed Gino on my podcast and I told him, and he loved this analogy. I said, sometimes entrepreneurs are like piano prodigies. You know, you hear about the entrepreneur who sold baseball cards or, or mowed lawns or shoveled snow or whatever to make money. They were always kind of hustling to make money. I never did any of that. I never did any of that. I had no desire. I never looked for ways to make money when I was a kid. But I think entrepreneurs sometimes, like the argument, are they born or are they made? I think sometimes you could be born an entrepreneur, but because the proverbial piano has never been put in front of you, as a prodigy, you didn't know you could play. And so once I got serious about my business and started going more into the entrepreneurial route, 
and I had that first big year and my, my company exploded, I finally, for the first time, realized what I was meant to do. I never had really realized how much that was who I was. I was just working a nine to five and thinking this is what I need to do. But it was very much like coming up for air when you're underwater and you're trying to breathe. And when I did that first deal, you know, I, I felt like I'd come up for air for the first time. So that, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. I love it. And it's really shocking, you know, on the corporate side, what I don't, you know, unless you put somebody's life at, in danger, there's no reason to scream at somebody at work, but you know, you whatever. wouldn't even believe the, the, the way in my face spit hitting my, you know, an inch away screaming at me. It was just amazing. I, 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 I said I, he was treating me like a three-year-old, but you would never talk to a three-year-old that way either. I mean, nobody deserves that. So yeah, it was good. It was a breaking point that I needed. Hey, well, you know, you gotta turn, turn the bad into the good. So that's right. You have a lot of ways that uh, you're involved with real estate now. You invest in real estate and so forth. And really wanted to dig into the flipping side of things and, and talk with our listeners, share lessons with our listeners around what a lot of flippers do wrong or how they can turn flipping into a business. Longtime listeners will have heard me complain about flipping as a strategy because a lot of people start that way, but don't turn it into a business. They turn it into a second mm -hmm. job. And then they're still working those late hours at their day job. Yep. And what do you know? They bought themselves a flip that you know, maybe they're risking getting underwater with, or they have this loan hanging over their head. They're not turning into a business. And yes. I love that you teach people how to do that. So let's dig into it and talk about how flippers can turn their flipping into a business and not a second job, because that's the really the big problem with flipping in general, in my mind. Totally. And I did it wrong for a while too. So I have the benefit of telling you how not to do it as well as how to do it. You know, my daughter came to me a few years ago and said, I want to start doing real estate. You know, what do you think I should do? I don't have a lot of time. I work a full-time job, but I want to get involved. I literally turned her in the direction of flipping because I think when it comes to like single family investing, and I'm just going to use the big kind of the big three routes that people take one of these three, they're either house flippers, wholesalers, or landlords, generally speaking. Yeah. And I think of those three, uh, landlords will give you the most hands off income, but it's, it's, a, it's a drip. It's a slow drip, right? It's not big chunks. House flipping, I think, is the next easiest to do when you don't have a lot of time. But you're right. Most people run a house flipping business like kids run a lemonade stand at the end of their driveway, <laughs> right? It's like money's coming in. You're just grabbing it, throwing it in a jar, and you're handing stuff out, and you're doing... You don't know what's happening. And a lot of people use like bank account management or bank account bookkeeping, I call it, where they, they know money's going in and going out. There's some money in the bank. They assume everything's working. And I've seen more than one house flipper go out of business because they couldn't manage their cash flow and they didn't know their numbers. And so I truly believe that you can take a very, very active business. And I, you did share with me before we went live here, and then you just mentioned it again, that that you've sort of you know teased or, or kind of made fun of that whole that that direction. And I get it because I think the vast majority of people who who are house flippers are not doing a great job of creating a business. They create very, very, you know, big scale jobs for themselves, mm -hmm. and they go from working nine to five to working nine to nine, and and they're not really any happier. They just created more work for themselves and stress because there's no guarantee of a paycheck at the end of the week. So the way that that I approach this, and and I shared with you off off Mike also that. I couldn't really, I probably couldn't tell you over the last five years, I, I would only know a handful of properties that we bought or sold. And we do on average a hundred 
transactions a year, 100 deals a year. Nice. And I, I, I maybe know five that I've heard of. And I only heard of them because they either were big money makers, they lost money somehow, <laughs> or for some reason, there was vacation time or something in my company. And so I stepped in for a day to help out. I mean, honestly, that's the only reason why I get friends and family who call me now who say, hey, what do you guys have available? And they'll name some city and I'll go, I have no idea. Call Connor and, and I'll give them my, <laughs> my dispositions manager's name. So the way that you do that, I mean, there's a lot of ways you do it. But number one, I was when I started and when I was doing it wrong, I wasn't using any sort of a system or process. I was kind of creating a new experience every time I bought a house to flip. And it was a new process and I didn't I had no common materials. I didn't have any SKUs. I was working with different contractors every time. I was rehiring contract. It was like every time was a brand new, unique experience, which is insane. That's a recipe for working your butt off. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I learned, and and by the way, I, you know, I'm not gonna lie, the reason why I was able to go from doing it wrong to doing it right, if I'm just gonna oversimplify this, it's because I I seeked, I, I sought out mentors and coaches. And I I tried to put myself in rooms with people who were doing it at a higher level than me and doing it much better. And that was a hundred percent how I did it. Now that's that's at a you know 30,000 foot view. What did you do? I got mentors and coaches, but what does that mean? So I learned about processes. I learned how to create repeating processes that could be documented and followed by someone other than me. If everything you do in your business is in your head, you will forever be doing that thing because people can't read minds. So it has to be something I could document and download to somebody else. So that's one thing. I also realized one of the biggest killers of a business, and this doesn't have to be single family, this could be any business you're in, multifamily, anything. If you don't know your numbers, if you're not tracking even just basic KPIs, right? Key performance indicators or metrics, whatever you want to call them. If you don't have basic KPIs that you're looking at in your business, you're doomed to fail. I, I, I looked it up one time. I gave a presentation on specifically KPIs. 87% of all businesses that failed did not know their numbers. It may not have been the only reason they failed, but it was a common denominator among all of these businesses that had failed in multiple industries. They didn't know their numbers. And so not knowing your numbers, and, and I've seen, man, I've seen house flippers that were very successful for a while and cash flow and anticipating cash flow needs destroyed them and they mm. went out of business. So knowing your numbers is absolutely huge. You cannot use your bank account to to be the sole indicator of whether or not you're successful. I also learned, and this was a big uh, a limiting belief of mine, is hiring. I, I thought I had to be a bigger company than I was to start hiring. But the problem was, it's like, to be a big company, I need to hire. But in order to hire, I need to be a big company, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's that whole like yeah. like circular logic. And so I learned how to start putting together a team in a way that wasn't going to break the bank so that I could do more than what I could just accomplish with my own efforts, right? Everybody has the same amount of time in their day and some people can do more than others. And that's probably speaks more to efficiency in the way that they're allocating time. But it, the b- bottom line is there's still only 24 hours. You can only do so much. No matter how optimized you are, there's still it's still finite. And so you have to be able to duplicate those efforts with other people. And one of my beliefs, other than I needed to be a bigger company to hire, was no one's going to do it as, as well as I'll do it. Yes. And so, and that may may or may not be true. It's, it's really not true. Oftentimes, 
people are much better than us. Even what we're good at, we could find someone better than us. But the reality is in the beginning, if you can find someone who can do it 80% as well as you, but but you can now do something else with your time, that's a multiplier, right? That's a That's a business multiplier. And so I brought people in and some of them were better than me. Certainly in the areas that I'm not strong, I found much better people. And even in the areas that I was really, really strong, I eventually found people that grew into that position and eventually became better than me at it. So there's nothing in my company now that I could step in and do without there being a dip in effectiveness. You know what I mean? Like I would Mm -hmm. effectively lower the bar by stepping in (laughs) because I've hired really, really good people who have become even better over time. And so that's a great feeling when you know that you are not the most capable person in your company. And a lot of people have this perfectionism or this like controlling, you know, they're the control freaks to use that term. And they don't hire because they they need to be in control of everything. And people who tell me I'm a, I haven't hired because I'm a control freak, I see someone who's working too many hours and they're significantly limiting the potential of their company. And so I definitely rail against that. And I have a whole more time than we have available today, but a whole rant on partnerships and and what that means and how you actually form partnerships effectively. And I don't mean from a legal entity standpoint, I mean, from a compatibility standpoint, because too many people partner and give away half their business when really they should be hiring somebody. Like that's a position you hire for. You don't necessarily partner. And most people do it for the wrong reasons and they do it with the wrong people, frankly. Wow. Okay. So there's so much there. First off, I want to just backtrack and kind of restate those things, making sure I get the bullet points. So first off, uh, mentorship and and learning from people who have gotten to the point where you wanted to be. Second, yep. knowing your numbers and understanding future cash flows, projecting those things, and and really being able to know where you're going to be and what the business's cash needs are going to be. And then yep. third was hiring people to increase your productivity, even if it's, even if it's painful to do. Am I missing any in there? Was there a number four that I might not have uh, caught on to? No, no. I mean, there are definitely more than that. I mean, there's a whole, this is something that no one thinks about. And I rarely mention it on podcasts and I'll be very brief because it tends to be something people hear it and they go, that's, that's, that's non, non issue for me. Right. And it's company culture. And it's not, mm. you know, it, it doesn't necessarily affect you when you're a solo operator. But as you start building a team, and the reason this is important is, again, I talk, I do talk about this, but it's sort of like the other side of explosive growth, which I experienced is I built a team, but I didn't manage them well. I was a poor manager. I was a poor leader. I was really good at, at building the company And I brought people in and put them in seats and we were like a rocket ship going to the moon. But the reality is when I got to that million dollars in in that 12-month time, my team almost 100% turned over in the following year because I had all the wrong people and I I I had the wrong people and or I was managing the right people poorly and they left. And so there was a huge deconstruction of my company that happened while we were in orbit. It was very scary but I was a poor manager of people and a poor leader. And some of that, a lot of that boiled down to company culture. And if you think company culture is a soft thing and it's like, it's fluffy and it's abstract and it's just something people say to sound smart. Trust me, when you build a team fast and you're not building the right culture and and managing leading people the right way, you will have significant turnover and hiring and and then subsequently firing or losing people is one of the most expensive things you'll do in your business. And so 
yeah, it may be company culture doesn't mean anything when you're the only employee, but the minute you start hiring and bringing on people, company culture means a lot, a whole lot. And and so I have a whole whole thing I talk about company culture and how you how you build a good company culture because I, I really built a toxic culture when I first started. It was turn and burn, it was numbers driven, it was very cutthroat. And that's I just figured that people were motivated by money and I gave them metrics. And if they didn't hit it, they were gone. And it's like, I wasn't treating people like human beings. But since then, we have people who've been with us now for about five years that literally, I, you know, jokingly, but I, 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 my dispo guy would probably hide a body for me if I asked him to. So <laughs> we, have, we have insane loyalty in our company, but that doesn't happen by accident. Your company culture is your company's personality, right? And so if you, if you don't pay attention to it, your company will get a bad personality and the people who are in it won't like your company and they need to like your company to stay. So, okay. So I feel like we mostly hear about company culture in the kind of big business, you know, corporate, frankly, BS type of situations where, okay, this is already a multinational. There's no changing really the way this company is. But in this case, we're talking about a relatively small business where you're going to know everybody personally. I guess I, what I want to dig into or understand better is is like what does that actually mean in a nuts and bolts sense about the culture of the company? Like what 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 yeah. change did you make? What knob did you turn to yeah. change that that culture? Because it's kind of a buzzword. I want to get away from get away. It from is a buzzword. I know it, and it has such a bad connotation. So for me, company culture is really about how you treat people and how you make them feel about coming in to work or you know working remotely, whatever it is. So number one, I stopped treating people like a tool or a cog in the machine that was only there to drive revenue. Mm. And that's really how I saw people in the beginning. I'll give you a lot of examples, but I'll I'll try to make this quick. So one tangible thing was we had a a phone, we call them lead intake, but it's person who answers incoming marketing calls, right? We send out marketing and people call us. So she she was answering phones. And she came to us and said, listen, I'm struggling with the schedule. She worked basically nine to five. She said, I'm struggling a little bit with my schedule. And I have uh, a request that I don't think you're going you're gonna to want to hear. And she said, my father needs physical therapy. And his appointments are standing appointments at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. Wow. And I love working here. I love you guys. But I, have, I am the only... I'm the only daughter. I'm the only kid that he has. I'm the only family member. I need to be able to bring him to physical therapy at three o'clock every single day. Now, because we track metrics and because we track things in our business and numbers, I know that the peak time that we receive calls is between two and four. Like that is those mm-hmm. are the peak hours. And so her leaving at 2.30 to get home by three or quarter to three to get her dad to physical therapy was like the worst possible scenario for us. But we said, okay, you can do that. Here's what we're like to, we'd like to request from you. Take them to, to, take them to physical ther- ther- therapy from three to four. When you get back, we would like you to be on the phones for those two hours, make up those two hours. And we hired someone to backfill her for a couple of hours. And so bottom line is we figured out a way to make it work for her. Now, what do you think she thinks about us going forward? Now, if we would have given her a $5 an hour raise, that would have made her happy for a month or two until mm-hmm. that money became normalized in her budget, right? But every time she brings her dad to physical therapy, she is reminded, 
I am able to do this because the company I work for is awesome and they care about me. They don't just care about numbers. They care about me. And so you want to talk about insane loyalty? Does she need a raise at the end of the year? Maybe, maybe not. But I guarantee if she doesn't get one for whatever reason, she's happier with what we did give her, right? We accommodated. the. So part of a good company culture is finding out what everybody who works for you, what are their passion points? What what is most important to them in life? Most important. We had another instance, Connor, my dispo guy, dispositions manager. Uh, he mentioned to me one time in passing, we were talking about, you know, how'd your weekend go, whatever. And he sort of mentioned to me that his daughter is in a play and he keeps having to miss things that she's doing like this. And he was going to miss her play. It was during the day. She was really young. And I just said, go to her play. Like, Anytime she has something like that during the day, you go to it. That's that's priority, and we'll we'll backfill. We'll figure out how to do get the work done or whatever, and and let him know that I thought his kids were more important than you know missing a few hours here and there. And again, he's the guy I said would probably bury someone for me. Like he's he still works for me. The phone person has since moved on, but it was like those are the things that we do. And what I call them is, <clears throat> and I have a whole like man, we could go deep on this, but. I call them debits and credits, right? They're relationship debits, debits and credits. When you meet someone for the first time, you have no credits. You really can't take away from that. So if I have to go to Connor and I have to kind of like come down a little bit because something went wrong or I'm like a little frustrated with him or whatever, like he can easily absorb that because there's a lot of credits that have been put into that relationship bank account over the years. And so he can weather any sort of rough times or bad day or whatever it is. But if you don't ever put any credits into those relationships accounts, and then you have to come down on somebody, it's like, this place sucks. He's a Mm -hmm. jerk. I don't like working for him. The company sucks. So you have to always be putting credits. And, and, and that really just goes to treating people like people. It's not a, it's not a complicated formula. You know, I have a bad habit because this is the way my, my brain is wired. I see someone for the first time that day, someone who works with me, works for me. And I just jump into business because that's, I'm okay with that on my side. If you come to me and you just jump into business, I don't think twice about it. But I've worked with people enough that I'll jump into business and they'll go, well, good morning to you. And I go, yes, that's true. We are human beings. I probably <laughs> should say hello and how are you today? But Adam, not wired that way. So I had to remember when I talk to people, how are you? How was your weekend? How was your night? What'd you do yesterday? You do anything fun? You have any vacations coming up? All these things where you start creating this bond where people feel... I, I texted my dispo guy. He just went on vacation this week. And I said, hey, man, have a great time with your family. You totally deserve it. You're awesome. We totally value you. Like huge impact. He's like, man, this just made my day. I, this is like so cool. I love working with you. I love you guys. This is awesome, right? So just things like that. It doesn't cost you anything to create company culture. In most, you, know, you can do these corporate events and team building and all that. Honestly, I have found the little things consistently will beat out the big things periodically. And so that's how we run our business. Absolutely. Wow. I love that. Thanks for digging into into that. So before we move on to the last part of the show, the end of the show, just wanted to see if we could sum it up for the flipper out there who's doing one or two deals a year, really struggling to scale and get to that point where they're comfortable. What is your message to that person? Specifically for house flippers, definitely come up with a repeatable process. And sometimes it's a matter of something as simple as saying, 
we have three sets of materials, A, B, and A, B, and C houses, right? A would be nice, you know, luxury houses or whatever, top, top of the line houses. B would be more mid-level and then C would be, you know, kind of lower end houses. So maybe just come up with three material skews that you can give to a contractor. Um, the other thing would be when you hire a contractor, I don't care what you think of him or her. It will probably break down at some point, the relationship. <laughs> yeah. So you should always be building a bench. And, and it's a baseball reference. So for those of you who don't watch baseball or don't care, have backup, have contingency plans or, or contractors that you're in contact with that they're ready to do something for you should you need them to do it. Okay. So have a process, have a backup plan when it comes to your contractor because that's time is money. And if you lose a contractor for whatever reason and you have to find a new one, that that time is killing you. The other thing I'd say would know your numbers. Cash flow will absolutely kill you as a house flipper. So know your numbers, know where the money's coming from to buy these houses, whether it's hard money, private money, you know, a regular mortgage kind of a situation. Line up, you should as a as a house flipper, you should be working on two things all the time. Where am I going to find better leads for for deals and how am I going to raise more cheaper money? Like those are the two constants. As as an owner, you need to worry about leads and money. In between there, it's processes and contractor relationships and making sure there's more than one contractor on board. Those are the big things. And then, you know, hire general contractors is my opinion, but I, people mm-hmm. could argue. But if you're going to scale this thing, right? You're not doing one or... If you're doing one or two flips, go ahead and subcontract everything out yourself. Totally fine. But if you want to build something that's bigger than you and you don't have to be involved... I say hire general contractors, let them manage the subs and you pull yourself out of it. That's how my daughter could flip three houses like in three months is she had a general contractor and she just had to manage him and then never stop marketing. When you're doing deals and and you're flipping houses and you feel like I can't really flip anymore right now, you still need to be marketing because you market at the peaks, not in the valleys. And so always market in the peaks, right? So that's just like some quick rapid fire, you know, stuff that people can utilize. Love it. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Mike, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? So ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? All right. Easy. And and hopefully this doesn't feel like a, a cop out answer, but it's it's true, hundred percent true. My best investment I ever did was my first one. Here's why: there was a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. And I, what I didn't tell you in my story was, I decided I wanted to be a real estate investor initially the first time back in 2003. I didn't buy my first wow. house till 2008, so I spent five years procrastinating. And so. The first deal I did was a lot like when you bring the kid to the, the the theme park and they're afraid of the roller coaster and you can coerce them to go on the roller coaster. <laughs> when they're done, what do they always say? I want to do it again. That was great, right? You eliminate the fear because you went through it. When I went through that first flip, I made mistakes. Things went wrong. 
but I made money and that was my proof of concept. And that was by far my best investment. I don't care if I make a million dollars on an investment. That first one was, was big because not only did it give me confidence, it also let my wife know it, this thing can work, right? <laughs> if I had just lost money and, and we didn't make any money, I don't know if I'd be talking to you right now. It might have ruined my marriage to try to do another one. So that first one meant everything to me. Nice. I love that. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst okay. investment you I'm going to give you the literal answer to this one, okay? My worst <laughs> literal investment in a property was a property that I had under contract. I was going to wholesale it. I was not going to flip it. I found a flipper that wanted to buy it. I was going to flip the contract to him. I was going to make a ton of money in between. The day of closing, he backed out. Ugh. And in my arrogance, in my arrogance, instead of saying, you know what? And it was, and by the way, this was, this was a high-end house in my, in my market. It wasn't a middle-of-the-road house. It was high-end. In my arrogance, I had, I had access to a lot of money that I, could, that I could mobilize quickly. I jumped in and bought it. Sight unseen. Didn't do enough due diligence like I would have done if I was going to flip it. Didn't even ask him why he was backing out. I was mad. And I said, I can move heaven and earth. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to close this thing. And I'm whatever. The other side of it was the sellers were in a tough spot if I would have backed out. So that, that colored part of my decision. But I'll be honest. It was pure arrogance when I bought it. Went into it. I, I, I won't tell you all the details, but I, I essentially did everything wrong. I put someone in charge of the flip who had never flipped a property in his life. And it went totally sideways. End of the deal. I lost six figures on that deal. Oh, man. And it was totally avoidable. 100% avoidable. Wow. Ouch. My favorite question. Oh, I, I believe it. Six figures. That's a lot of money to lose. But you yeah. learned a lesson. So. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, that that deal I just talked about helped build up to the lesson that I think was the biggest lesson I learned. And it comes from a book that I think everyone should read called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. Mm. I learned extreme ownership because when that went sideways and I lost six figures, initially, I blamed the guy I put in charge of that flip and said, you screwed this up. You, you cost us all this money. You, 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 you. The reality was he had never flipped. I, I had been a longtime flipper. Everything that went wrong was easily foreseeable or preventable with my experience. But I put someone in charge and I gave him no supervision. I didn't check in on it. I just basically said, take care of it. And, and so I had to learn the lesson I learned on that day and, and other days along the way was extreme ownership. Everything everything comes back to me. I need to take responsibility for what goes wrong in my company and not, not point fingers at anybody. Even if they were directly involved, it's on me, right? What could I have done to change the outcome? And so that's how I try to look at it, everything now. Wow. Big one, big one. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to find you on the internet or anything like that, where can they track you down? I would say two key places. I have a podcast uh, like this. It's called Just Start Real Estate. So you can find me at Just Start Real Estate or you can simply go to MikeSimmons.com and you can find everything out there. You can find even my podcast there, everything. Awesome. Love it. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.